0: morning everyone, our Parsha class this morning is sponsored by Martin and Sandra Fish in honor of their upcoming anniversary, very happy anniversary, Mazel Tov, tov. thank you for your sponsorship. If you're interested in sponsoring, you can arrange with our shul office. This week, we have the privilege of beginning Sefer Shmos with Parsha Shmos. We transition, as I always point out, from the story of the birth of our first family to the birth of our people as a nation, Brashas represented that transition. ...from a dysfunctional to hopefully a functional family. And the family now expands, becomes more sophisticated... ...and takes on the structure and the status, not just of a family, but of a people. So let's begin, as we always do, first with an overview of the parsha, ...and then we'll delve into our psukim, picking up from where we left off last year. The parsha begins, E'la b'nei Yisrael ha-boy These are the names of the Jewish people who came to Egypt... Es Ishu Beiso Bo'u. And here we have in the opening posik both names B'nei Yisrael, the name that depicts the immortality of the Jewish people, the special nature of the Jewish people, the elevated, transcendent nature, as well as Es Yaakov Ishu Beiso Bo, When they first descended to Egypt, it was with the status of Yaakov, the Akev, the heel, holding on the imagery of being more dependent, and so on. In the opening pasuk itself, we have a hint as to what led to the the exodus, what led to the merit of Yetzirah Mitzrayim. These were the names. We know Chazal tell us that though we were integrated to a degree, assimilated into the culture of Mitzrayim, we merited to be saved, to be redeemed, because of three things that we held on to. What were they? held on to our language, held on to our names, and held on to... What? Our appearance, our dress, our distinct appearance. And one can argue these are the three things that have saved us throughout our history. That throughout 2,000 years of exile, of being dispersed across nations and countries who had foreign languages and foreign cultures, who each had their own style of dress, it was the courage to wear our yamaka, so to say to have an appearance of a Jew it was the courage to maintain a Jewish name to know one's Jewish name it was the courage to have a language even though maybe in the vernacular we communicated with the language of the host country in which we lived but we retained the capacity to communicate in our unique language as well so here you have a reference to the Ela Shemos. these are the names of the Jewish people a name we know reveals an essence. A name reveals what is inside. We have a tradition that parents have a degree of prophecy. When they bestow a name upon their children, they're not just giving a name, they're actually giving a description of the child. It's it's prescient. They're looking into the future and anticipating and giving the courage, the strength, the character to the child who will live by the name that they're given. Names are not, to us, random nor are they insignificant. You know, the word chair is just a word we've all agreed to use to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the thing that you're sitting on right now. There's no inherent or intrinsic significance to the word chair. Chair is just the agreed upon word, so we're all on the same page. When we use a name, it's not just a label. Oh yeah, so we know who we're talking about, we'll refer to him or her as the same name. No, the name is a description The name is a prediction. The name speaks to the very intrinsic inherent character of the person. And part of what meant that our names, maintaining, retaining our names, led to our redemption meant that whatever was happening on the outside, however broken we were, however persecuted and oppressed, whatever degree of assimilation, our essence remained the same. The who we've quoted before, The Chaim Kohn in his Sefer Tal Chaim talks about this great value of what the name achieved. He says that the Golos Mitzrayim was a tikkun, it was a repair for what happened with Adam. That when the call went out, Ayeka, where are you? Maral describes Ayeka means who are you? Not where are you, God knows everything. God certainly can go on his tracking device, find his iPhone, and know exactly where he is. Ayeka, where are you? As if God doesn't know. So the maral ayeka means, who are you? I don't recognize you. Who are you? What's your atzmos? What's your essence? What drives you? What's your moral compass? What motivates you? Ayeka, who are you? Shmos, shemos, is the answer to who are you. In our core, in our essence, what we are inside is our name. And what it means they maintain their name doesn't just mean they knew what name to put on the Matzeva. They knew how to be called up to the Torah. They properly filled out the Ksuba. I'm obviously being facetious. It doesn't just mean they didn't have those things yet. It means they knew who they were. They hadn't lost that sense of their destiny, of the description of their essence, of their potential, of the reality of who, they, of who they really were. Okay, the generations pass. nefesh, nefesh, Yosef, We remind ourselves, as if we didn't just read last week's Parsha Vayechi, the 70 who descended. Last week we talked about how you count the 70, who was the 70th. Yosef was in Mitzrayim. Yosef dies and all of his brothers, The Jewish people spread. The Jewish people populated tremendously. The Midrashim tell us about the multiple births that were experienced miraculously that created this explosive population growth so that our presence in Egypt was no longer not discernible. It was no longer unnoticeable. Our presence became very obvious. I just saw a story, the Jerusalem Post, a nice heartwarming story. A couple in their 90s, among the founders of Kibbutz Lavi in North Israel, ran away from the Nazis, escaped Nazi Germany in oppression, and they just celebrated yesterday the birth of their 100th great-grandchild. Baruch Hashem. It's nice to have good news every once in a while. It's uncomfortable. I know you're not used to it, but uh, learn to deal with it. It's good. It's good to have good news too. The ultimate answer, the ultimate answer, even in the midst of the gullus, is there a deeper, darker gullus than running away from the Nazis? If you were to ask this couple, could they imagine being alive to celebrate the birth of a hundred great-grandchildren in Israel, founding a religious kibbutz. It's just the unimaginable is imaginable if you have emuna in Hashem. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So the Jewish people spread. They become noticeable. amitzrayim asher lo yada es Yosef. There was a new king. It's a, no parallels, but... A new king was inaugurated over Egypt. Yosef that did not know Yosef. We're all familiar with Rashi, two opinions. What does it mean, didn't know Yosef? Made himself as if he did not know. Was it literally a new king who had no contact, no connection with Yosef and his descendants? Or the same king who had lost contact. Sfarno, the Ibn Ezra, we've learned this in the past. To me, this is one of the sources in the Torah. Activism from the Torah, lobbying from the Torah, right here. Maintaining relationships, activism, connections, lobbying, so that when you need it, so that when it's necessary, when you need to cash in on it, it's there. Jewish people had retreated. They grew. Goshen is exploding. And they forgot to maintain those contacts and those relationships. And what happens, they threaten the explosive population growth of the Jewish people, threatens Mitzrayim. The demographics of Mitzrayim, they're now a chaticha ru'il they're now a, a unit, an entity that could threaten the dominance of the Egyptians. So they persecute. So the non-Jewish answer throughout our history to the perceived or illusion of threat that we pose is to persecute and oppress, to knock us down. And that's exactly what they did. They made their lives bitter through the workload, the back-breaking labor. Fine. Then they further decreed, we all know the story, let's go through it quickly, that... Paro anticipated with the help of astrology a redeemer of Israel would be born, so he decreed that all the, first born, that all the boys rather, had to be cast into the Nile. The Mialdosa Ivrios, who are these Mialdosa Ivrios? Shifra and Pua, according to most. There is some commentary that argues, a radical commentary we've discussed in the past as well. That this is not in fact Shifra and Puah; it's not Miriam and Yochever, it's not even Jews. It's a fascinating uh, interpretation. Not for now. You can listen online. They defy the decree and they earn great reward in exchange. As a result, Moshe is of course born. But Moshe is born in our parsha to anonymous parents. Ishmi Levi, va'ikach es Levi. A man from the house of Levi took a woman from the home, a descendant of Levi, and this mystery woman, this anonymous woman, gives birth, conceives and gives birth to a boy, and they're able to hide him for three months, but then they can no longer hide him, so they put him in the basket. Why, why, not, why the anonymity? If we know who Moshe's parents are, why not come forth immediately? Why is it held close to the chest until later? Why this mystery? Ishmi beislevi, vayikach is baslevi. Also, a great question. We're not going to discuss now. So Moshe is put in the basket, and vatiftach nar The daughter of Paro, Bisya, the daughter of Paro, sees the boy floating, and you know the Medrash. She extends her arm, miraculously goes further. She's able to grab this child. She feels tremendous sympathy, empathy and calls a uh, Jewish midwife to nurse the baby and uh, and so on. Moshe grows up in the palace. Moshe gets older, he goes out to his brothers and he sees their suffering. He witnesses an Egyptian striking a Jew. He looked this way and he looked that way and he saw there was no man. Moshe comes out of the palace and he has an identity crisis. Who is the real Moshe? What's his name? Ayeka. Who is the real Moshe? Is it the Moshe who is born to Jewish parents? The Moshe who identifies and associates with the plight, the fate, the destiny of this persecuted people? Or is it the Moshe of the palace? Is it the prince who grows up in the lap of luxury? Who grows up with opportunity. Who is the real Moshe? So homiletically some say, read it. Va'if en He looked this way and that way. He looked at this integrated person he was trying to be. Who was not exactly a Jew and not exactly an Egyptian. And what did he see when he tried to live this blend of the two? What did he see? Va'yar ki'enish. There was no man. He was nobody. He was nothing. You cannot be both simultaneously. At your core, at your essence. What's your name? Ayeka, who are you? Doesn't mean you can't participate in and take the best from and contribute to the world around you. But when there's a clash of your values and a clash of your morals and a clash of your loyalty, who are you? A liberal, Western minded American who goes with the fashion, the fads, and the mores and the ethics of the time? Or are you a Yid, a Jew? Vaifen Kovacho! Moshe looks. <laughs> who is he? The prince from the palace? The little boy? Hid for three months? Kienish. If he would try to be both, he was neither. So what does he do homiletically? Vayaches Amitsri. He smites the Egyptian in him, and he buries that part of his identity. Again, not advocating retreating from society, take the best from, contribute to, participate, what we believe, but in the core values when there's conflict. Moshe goes out the second day, now he sees two Jews fighting and he intervenes. He understands he's in trouble and he runs. And he runs. Very interesting, Moshe grows up in the palace. How is he going to identify with his people growing up in the palace? That's part of his hesitancy, we'll study in a moment. Moshe's reluctance to accept the assignment. They're not going to listen to me. I don't have scars on my back. I'm not as tan from the sun. I haven't worked those hard hours. I've been growing up in the lap of luxury. They're not going to listen to me. So Taka, it's a good question. Why would God make Moshe grow up in the palace, removed from the people, not sharing their experience? The Ibn Ezra has a phenomenal comment. Says the Ibn Ezra, Moshe had to go to the palace, walk up to Paro, look him in the eye, and demand to let his people go. Do you know what that means to walk up to the strongest human being on earth, to the leader of the world, to the emperor? of the greatest empire. Do you know the courage it takes? Do you know the conviction, the confidence that has to be mustered to look into the eye of such a powerful man and make a demand? Now true, God says, don't worry, I'll be right behind you. But God's right behind him. Moshe still has to have the courage to look Paro in the eye. Says the Ibn Ezra, to look a king in the eye and make a demand? You have to think of yourself as a prince. You have to grow up a prince. You have to think of yourself as royalty. And therefore, as capable, as entitled, as deserving of being in that palace. You can't walk into that palace and feel insecure, inferior. You have to be confident. And so for Moshe to act like a king, he had to be raised like a king. I'm reminded Seven years ago, six years ago, I I was uh, very honored to be invited with a small group to the White House to meet with the administration, later with the president himself on issues of Israel messaging. You remember that six years ago, seven years ago. So a congressman with whom I'm very close and I talked to before I went, trying to figure out what exactly I was going to say and how to make the point, points that were so important to be made, he gave me the best advice. He said when you when you go sit in the Roosevelt Room in the west wing of the White House you're going to be so enamored you're going to just forget who you are and why you're there because you're not going to believe where you're sitting and with whom you're meeting. He said here's what you need to do. You got to go in, look around, take a deep breath, be excited you're there, and then put that aside and remember your mission and what you have to say. It was the best advice and you could see the tremendous impact it had but it was (laughs) at least I said what I wanted to say imagine what would have happened had I not said what I needed to say so the Ibn Ezra says for Moshe to have the confidence not to walk into the palace and and feel oh my I can't believe I'm here and who am I and I'll ask nicely maybe if you don't mind it's possible perhaps you would consider letting the people go To have the confidence to make that demand, says the Ibn Ezra, Moshe had to be raised as a king. It's a big lesson, I think, in chinuch for our children. How we carry ourselves, how we present ourselves, how we dress, how we speak. Are we nobility? Are we royalty? Do we educate our children, grandchildren, that the language, the dress of the street is not us. We are b'nai malachim. We are princes and princesses. We are royalty. We are the children of the Almighty. Like Moshe, we are raised in the palace of the King, of God Himself, and how we carry ourselves and who we are should should reflect that uh, upbringing. So Moshe realizes he's got to run and he heads to Midian, the episode, here we go with the wells again, and he finds a wife, now the time for the salvation arrives. Moshe is a shepherd wandering. This is the psukim we're going to study. Comes across a bush which is on fire and yet it's not being consumed. It's not burning. There are so many, so much symbolism in that bush. Is the angel at the center of the burning bush? Is it supposed to depict God in some way? Does it depict the Jewish people? That though they're working so hard, they're not consumed, they never give up. Does it depict the Egyptians, the Or and in our Parsha says, who though they're smacked around with makkah after makkah, plague after plague, they are resilient and they have resolve in the oppression of the Jewish people. They're unwavering. Who exactly does it depict? One sort of beautiful explanation. God is recruiting Moshe to be the leader, the manig of the Jewish people. The image of a leader is a bush on fire that's not being consumed. Why? A leader has to be on fire, passionate, enthusiastic, devoted, dedicated, and never burn out. Never allow themselves to be consumed. Be careful. Pace oneself so that they don't burn out. So Moshe sees this fire. God tells him, take your shoes off. This was our topic last year. You could listen online. I think we gave five explanations. Why, when you're in a holy place, be it that holy place in the communication with God or on Har Habayis? till today, those who follow the opinion that you're allowed to go on Har Habayis and walk around Har Habayis, you can't wear leather shoes. Adayom Azeh, him, didn't wear shoes, you learn the Mishra'is, you see, you coin Gadol, Yom Kippur, and so on. The, uh, why can't you wear shoes? We offered five reasons very very interesting last year God recruits Moshe Moshe hesitates God convinces him Moshe wants a sign God gives a sign Moshe says how do I refer to you what is your name who should I say sent me and God answers and then we have the beginning Moshe doubts the people's faith the desperate plea God responds Moshe heads to Mitzrayim Zipporah gives the bris to the children what that's about Moshe and Aaron come face to face and confront Paro and make this demand of him. But he increases the burden and the Jews complain to Moshe and Aaron. I thought you were here to save us. What happened to the brighter future you promised? Since you got involved, since you started meddling, it's only gotten worse. And that's how our parsha ends. So let's go back and let's start where we left off last year, Perak Pasuk Vav. Let's actually reread Pasuk Dalad. This is the story that Moshe is shepherding the flock because we see that our great patriarchs and leaders were shepherds. It's not coincidental. How do you say shepherd in Hebrew? Ro'eh. How do you say friend in Hebrew? Re'ah. At the core of being a good shepherd is being a good friend. The core of being a good friend is having the capacity to shepherd. Shepherd is not just a job, it's a calling. It's got to be devotion and love towards one's flock. Our great leaders had the experience of responsibility of shepherding. Not just because it was a great job that left you time to learn. It was a job where you could reflect and meditate and think out in the field with the sheep, with the flock, but the responsibility towards the flock cultivated a great sense of responsibility, love, friendship, and so on. So Moshe is shepherding the flock when all of a sudden, as we just mentioned, he sees this imagery of the sneh. It's bo'er ba'ish; it's on fire, but it's enenu ukal; it is not consumed. And Moshe turns to look. Mephorsham point out that what made Moshe the perfect leader is that he bothered to look. Was the burning bush only visible to Moshe? Or is it that Moshe was the only one who saw it? There are miracles all around us. God reveals His hand all around us. But it takes the very special people to see it, to turn to look, to notice To appreciate. Maybe many others walked right by that bush and didn't notice. But it says, Vayar Hashem kisar liros. What made Moshe different, God noticed that he stopped to look. That he had enough space, enough presence, enough mindfulness to notice. If your life is always on the move, if you're always looking at your cell phone, if you're always listening for the next alert, the beep, if you're always running to the next place, there's so much noise you can't hear or see or think or perceive miracles happening all around us. So God sees that Moshe is Sar Liros, and God calls him from the bush. I mentioned last year, there's a Medrash, which my brother first pointed out to me. The Medrash says, God saw that Moshe turned to look. When did Moshe turn to look? When did God see that Moshe turned to look? Was it right now, because he bothered to look at the bush? Says the Medrash. No. When did God see Moshe bother turn to look? Earlier. What does it say? Vayigdal Moshe. al-achav, Moshe grew up and he went out to his brothers. Vayar. Besivlo sum. That Moshe grew up in the palace. He was mature, he was a young adult. He went outside, Vayar, and he saw what? Besivlo some their suffering. The Vayar Hashem Kisar Liros, says the Medrash is not that right now God saw Moshe turn to look at the bush. That's not what first made the Ribbonu Shalom take notice. What made God take notice was earlier. Kisar Lirot that Moshe had seen their suffering with a sense of empathy, with a sensitivity, with a care, with a concern. So, it's amazing. Why did God recruit Moshe? What is it about Moshe's life, his biography, his background, his skills, his talents? Is it Moshe's superior intellect, his charm, It's not his eloquence or oratory skills. We know that. See, the Avonavim, the greatest and the father of all prophets, the most spiritual, pure, angelic person, what is it about Moshe that God said, He's my man? What should be the most important character trait in a rabbinic search committee? (coughs) I'm not going anywhere. I'm just... At least by my choice, I'm not. Rav Simcha the altar of Kelm, says, if you want to know what made God so in love with Moshe, so convinced Moshe was his man, that he refused to to take a no, then you have to look at the four stories in our parsha that all have a similar theme. In the first story, some we just mentioned, the first story, Moshe leaves his flat screen, high definition television, his personal sushi chef, his in the palace Starbucks. Moshe leaves his Egyptian cotton sheets. Of course they were Egyptian cotton. <laughs> high thread count. His plush pillows. Moshe leaves all of the creature comforts of the palace, the protection of the palace, and he goes outside. Why? Vayar He wants to see what's happening with his people, with his family. And what does he see? Their misery, their suffering. He had no reason to go out. He could have easily shielded his eyes. He could have left the palace and gotten into his camel with tinted windows Bulletproof and shielded his eyes from seeing what was happening. Who wants to see it and just feel so terrible, feel guilty for what he has in the palace? But he doesn't shield his eyes. Not only does he not shield his eyes, the whole reason he goes is to see and feel empathy for what they're going through. What's the second story? He sees an Egyptian striking a Jew. Again, he's got this conflict. Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Jew? What would you have thought? What would he do? Not get involved. Go back inside. You didn't see anything. There's nothing to see here. Nothing to do. But what does Moshe do? He intercedes. He gets involved. Says the altar of Kelm. It's not just by Yair Sivlo Sam to see the pain and the suffering of the masses. But he identifies with the pain of the individual. Of the specific person, and he gets involved in order to help. What's the next story? Bayoma He goes out again. He leaves his comfort zone again. Now again, if what happened to him happened to me the day before, I'd say, you know what? I'm staying in the palace for a little while. Who needs to get involved? Who needs to see? Who needs to identify with? It's pretty good in here. I'm staying in here. The second day, the very next day, he goes out again, again to see their suffering, and again in a quest and mission to relieve it and to help it. And what does he see now? Two Jews, two Hebrews fighting. Says the altar, Moshe didn't just get involved to protect his people from the outside, Moshe is involved to protect his people from themselves. Vayetse. Moshe's life is characterized as going out, noticing what's going on. And that costs him his freedom. costs him the palace. The result of going out and seeing what's going on and wanting to help means he's on the run. He's got to go to Midian. It costs him his freedom. And here we have the fourth and final story of the first 80 years of Moshe's life. This is the sum total of what we know. Now we're biased because we have the medrash. And we all grew up with the midrashim of the hot coal and the tongue and the burn and the stories and that. We know all the midrashim. But read the text itself. The first 80 years of Moshe's life, four stories. And what's the fourth story? He arrives in Midian only to discover that the shepherds are harassing the young women and he gets involved. He drives them away. And here again says the altar of Kelm, Moshe could have said, you know what? Getting involved has already cost me the palace, the comfort, where I grew up. I'm starting a new life in Midyan, keeping my head down, my eyes to the ground. I'm not getting involved. Is that what Moshe says No. Fourth story, Midyan. Now, it's not the pain of his people. It's not the pain of the individual. It's not trying to help his people from themselves. Now who is he trying to help? Complete and utter strangers. Not part of his family, not part of his people. And instead of being passive or indifferent, he asserts himself, he intercedes. Ask the altar, what do these four stories? All we know of the first 80 years of Moshe's life. Clearly the Torah is trying to communicate a message to us before God recruits Moshe to be the leader. What is the common denominator? What's the common theme of all four stories? Says the altar. Is it Moshe's brilliance? No. In none of the stories do we see Moshe solved a great math equation that was left on the chalkboard in the palace and none of the other kids could get it in the middle of the night. He wrote the solution and no one else did. It's not Moshe's brilliance. It's not Moshe's good looks. It's not his charisma. It's not his charm. It's not his athleticism or artistic ability. Says the altar. Moshe is recruited as our leader because he excelled in a specific character trait, namely No Say Baol He excelled at not just seeing the burden of another, but feeling it, participating in it, empathizing with it, and trying to to relieve that very suffering. Torah tells us four stories, but the Midrash fills in a fifth. There was a lamb, a part of Moshe's flock, and it ran away from Moshe. So Moshe chased after the little lamb, and a pool of water appeared before the lamb, and the lamb stopped because it was thirsty, running away from Moshe. It bent down to lap up some water to drink. And when Moshe arrived, says the Midrash, he said to the lamb, I didn't know you were running because you were thirsty. Now I see you're tired. He took the little lamela and he put it on his shoulder and he carried the lamb back. And a Baruch it's that image says the Medrash, this fifth and final story. God sees Moshe with the lamb on his shoulders saying, little lamb, you're so tired, Nebuchadnezzar, you're so thirsty. Come, let me carry you. Let's rejoin the group. Let's get back to the flock. And Ribono Shalom says, That's my man. I don't care that he can't speak publicly. I'm not impressed by all the other tremendous things he has going for him. It's this, the common theme of the four stories and the imagery of this fifth story. And that's why the Mishnah, the Bryson, the sixth chapter of Pirkei Avos tells us that one of the 48 ways that the Torah is acquired that we learn from Moshe is, Nosei be'ol imchavero. Nose means to carry the burden with your friend. Now when you carry the burden with your friend, does the burden disappear? What happens to the burden for your friend? It gets a little lighter. If you see someone schlepping a table, and you go and help them, the table doesn't magically make it to the new place. It still needs to be carried. But for your friend, it gets a little lighter. And that's why the language is, no beol to carry with your friend. The Baal Turim says, Moshe is not the only one who has this. Moshe learned this. When we saw earlier that Moshe is put in the basket, he's floating in the Nile, Bissian, daughter of Paro, notices him, stretches her arm to retrieve him. It says, the lad is crying. To which the Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, asks, Why would Moshe, the baby in the basket, be described as a nar? It's a tinok. It's a baby. Not a nar. So who was crying? Says the Balaturim, V'nei nar bucha the child was crying, is not talking about Moshe, the baby in the basket. You know who it's talking about? Aaron Hakoin. Aaron, his brother. Why was Aaron crying? Baal says when they put Moshe in the basket, Aaron hid behind the tree and could not stop staring. He couldn't take leave. He wouldn't leave, abandon his brother. He was no, no se baolim chavero. He had to watch to see what would happen. He felt the pain of his parents. He needed to be involved. And it's not just Aaron Akkoi. Lastly, who is the model of Nosei Ba'olim Chavero? You know why Rashi says God comes in the image of the burning bush? Because the burning bush is low to the ground. And God is Imo Anochi Bitsara. I'm with you, even in this exile. I'm with you during this pain. God himself is Nosei Ba'olim Chavero. So what impresses God about Moshe? most important quality of a leader. They need to be a Talmachacham and a good speaker. They should be good-looking, charismatic, charming, good golfer, tennis player. They need al But what's the most important quality of a leader? No say ba'olem chavira. They lack empathy. They could be the most brilliant in the world. You don't want him to be your rabbi. You don't want him to be your Rebbitzin. You don't want him to be your leader. No se baol im chavero. Okay, so let's keep going. So God introduces himself to Moshe at this bush. He says, "I am the God of your father. I am the God of Avram, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov." And Moshe turns because he can't look at the Almighty God. Why does God introduce himself in this way? Anochi Elokei Avicha I am the God of your Father. So the Ramban, before we get to the Ramban, go to the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar says, Perish Razal, says the Kliyakar quoting Chazal Shmos Rabbah, Aviv. Wild. God appeared to Moshe and disguised his voice to sound as if Moshe's own father, Amram, was calling him. Ukisha and when Moshe said, "Here I am," he thought he heard his father. Amram. Now that I got your attention, now that I made you look, it's not your father. But who am I? I am the God of your father. And why does it say, the God, four times in the Pasuk, corresponding with the four languages of redemption that we know we're familiar with from our Parsha? was Shem next week's parsha says the Kleakar why would god disguise his voice as moshe's father amram Because you wanted to tell Moshe, I have bad news for you. You've been in Midian, saving the women at the well. You've been at Midian getting married, building a family. I'm sorry to tell you that your father has passed away. And why was it so critical right now for God to tell Moshe his father had passed away? Because God anticipated that one of Moshe's arguments of why he couldn't be the leader would be, don't take me, take my father. To which God says, your father is not an eligible candidate. And that's why, anochi eloke avicha. The Ramban is bothered on the Pasuk, why the Kliyakar says eloke four times corresponds with the Dal of the Shonus of Gula. But the Ramban is bothered by a different question. He is the God of each of your forefathers. Each of them is your father. We use the Pasuk says, This is my God and I will glorify Him. We have a dual relationship with God. On the one hand, my relationship with God is predicated on, it's built on, it sits on the shoulders of my ancestors' relationship with God. So, I didn't discover God in a vacuum. I'm not the first. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, going all the way back to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. But on the other hand, if the sum total of my relationship with God was as the continuation of the relationship of my ancestors, my relationship would be somewhat dry and sterile, impersonal, would lack of affection and love. So it's viva aroma menu, but it's Zekehli van I have to develop my own unique personal relationship. I have to discover God in my life. And because my life is by definition different than every other, then how I see God in my life will be different. My connection, my closeness, my gratitude, my longing, my dependence. Every individual has a different relationship with Hashem. So which comes first? Zekeli v'anveyu comes before elok Aviv v'arom amenu. Why? Because the more authentic relationship is the one that I forge. The personal one. My conversations with God. My perceptions of God. My connection with Hashem. That's the more authentic. That's the more personal. But what if I don't have it? What if I don't connect? What if I don't feel it? Am I off the hook? That's Eloke Aviva Aroma menu. That's when we have to tap into the continuity, the connection, the feeling of those who came before me, and my sense of responsibility in continuing it. So says the Ramban We begin with Avram because he really discovered, promoted God. Eloke <clears throat> Avram, and then Eloke like Eloke Yaakov. Estramban, why don't we just say Eloke Avram Yitzhak Vyakov? Would be more efficient. Why repeat Eloke each time? And the answer is because everyone has their own God. Not that there's more than one God, God forbid, but each of us have our own perception of and connection with God. So it's Eloke Avram Eloke like Eloke Yaakov. And where else do we see that expression used? The beginning of our Amida. Why? Because the Amida is the invitation to have an audience with the Almighty. So we are reminded, as we walk into the audience with the Almighty, don't just recite some formula, some template. Don't just do what your ancestors did. This is your God. Get to know him, be connected with him. Look for him, thank him, ask him. Eloke Avram, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. Yitzchak did not just have the exact same relationship with God as Avram, nor Yaakov with Yitzchak. He was Eloke Avram, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. And so to each of us forge our own relationship, says the Ramban. Pasig Zayim says, God, I see the servitude, the suffering of my people in Egypt. I hear their cry. I see their suffering. I hear their cry. Because of those who are oppressing them, I know of their suffering. What's going on here in this Pasuk? So, there's a great Pasuk. Says the Sforanam. Let's look at this comment of the Sforanam. <laughs> says, God, I see the suffering of my people. <laughs> the righteous of the generation who are pouring out their hearts in prayer. <laughs> Niglamala Hashem Tokhasne And corresponding or opposite them is the angel whose presence is in the middle of this bush. Vitam Ra' Raisi, Omnam Raisi, why does it say the double language? Ra'u Raisi, God says, I have surely seen. Omnam Raisi. It's emphasis, it's emphatic. Vizetama Makobuchomokum Keshi Yusam Lakafelkum alone ala, Yachom du Khal and Yanukitam Omnam. Lahorosha M.s Kahu says the Whenever you see redundancy in the Torah, whenever you see that double language, it comes for emphasis. And it also tells you when you might have thought the opposite. This is the way it is. Kenyan Yadati bnei Yadati. Klomar Kamoshahora Hosamalach Betochasne, Viafapishal Saremashivadi, Kamoshahore Haish Basne, Mikomokum, Liosifo, Mitzur Matsarim, or Sambachol Makos, Kamoshore in Yasne, and Ukau, Kiam the Menakovana Bemako Shavi Alem Lachrisam Loshi, Yisro Bemakom, of Alahatsa Yisro Miodam, Ulo Shivam Bemokom Acher. Sforno here says something very interesting. What was the purpose of the plagues? We usually think it was to punish the Mitzrim, to get them to change their ways. Says the Zfar, no, absolutely not. The Mitzrim never changed their ways. They never gave up the desire to exterminate the Jewish people, to oppress the Jewish people. What was the reason for the makos to educate the Jewish people about God and ultimately to liberate the Jewish people? And so, the imagery of the bush burning, not consumed, says the Svarno, is the Mitzvah, smacked again and again and again, but not consumed, because they never give up. They never give up their mission to oppress the Jewish people. That is the insight of the Svarno. It's very interesting here. What makes God tell Moshe, the time has come? 210 years of suffering... And now, God says, the time has come. What was the catalyst? What's the springboard? What makes it happen? God says, what did I hear? Ra'o Raisi, I see. V'estza'aka some shamati. I heard their, their cries. The Slalom Rebbe, the Nesiva Sholem, points out that the same way God promises four languages of redemption... That's preceded by four languages of crying out. Anachazzaaka shavanaka. Four, Torah totally uses four different verbs. Four separate words to describe their cry, their moan, their groan, their krechts. Anachazzaaka shavanaka. They're crying out. The four languages of groaning earned the four languages of redemption. Does it say they prayed? No. Does not say they prayed. It doesn't say they prayed with words. But did they pray? Salaam Rebbe de- develops this idea. Do you want to know the most authentic type of davening? The most genuine form of prayer is not with words. It's a crime. It's a call, to scream, to a to it's a moan. Eilu, Anachaz It's like the shofar. Shofar, Rabbi Salavachik said, the shofar is a form of Tfilah. The shofar is a manifestation of prayer. We pray with words, but sometimes when we want the prayer to come from the depths of our soul, from the essence of our being, we don't want to be limited or constrained or distracted by having to capture it with words. You want to get to the core of where you're at? It's that cry. It's that krechz. It's the moan. Not stammer moan or krechz, but to direct the moan or krechz as a form of prayer to God. To let the cry carry the goal, the wish, the intent, the hope, as a form of tefillah. And the Slatim Rebbe writes, "That's the aschalta de Aschalta degeula, Eisakasher Kolchelke Hanashama Neenachu Lefne Hashem yisbarach. The Jewish people were sick and tired of that reality. They were done. They had hit rock bottom. Sometimes the redemption doesn't come when you're low. It doesn't come when you're on your way down. The redemption only comes when? When you've hit where? Rock bottom. Because there when you're finding, you let out this groan, this cry, this exasperation. Enough! On the way down, you're using words. Hope, dreams, prayers. Please turn it around. It's not real enough. It's not raw enough. But when you're on the bottom and you let out that cry... Saka Naka Shava Anaha. That's real and it's not limited by words and that was the catalyst of the redemption. And you know what God's answer is? Kiyadati. God so identifies with that call, how genuine and authentic it is. He knows. He had seen their cries. He had heard their cries, but it turned into knowledge, cognitive, real, captured, concrete. Why? Because it was so genuine. Selonim Rebbe says something, Rabbi Saloveitchik and his Chumash says the same thing. That word, God says, Ki adati, I know I connect with the cry. What does it mean? Shaz Jewish people had been alienated, had been at a distance from the Almighty. But that cry reconnected them. And it wasn't a loose connection. The cry, it was so genuine and deep. It reconnected them in not a superficial way, in the deepest way. I'll read to you from the row. <clears throat> the term Das implies more than cognitive awareness. It implies intimacy, closeness of association, sympathy with the other fellow. God saw the Israelites and became intimate with their suffering. The term denotes passional knowledge. The I sympathy with the thou. Das implies intimacy. Hence, the sexual act in Hebrew uses the term das. God didn't just hear their cries. He felt connected. He felt intimate with them. That's how genuine it was their desire to turn around. See, until now they didn't have that desire. They didn't believe that they were worthy or capable of a better future. In fact, God says He's going to save them. From where? Next see. God says, I will go down and save them from Egypt to bring them up to this land flowing with milk and honey that belongs to the Canaanite nations. Why is God going down? So here we have a number of opinions. Says the Ibn Ezra, Vo'ired. God ordains from above. When we imagine God, He dwells in the heavens. So if He's about to intercede and alter things here on earth, He has to come down from His throne, which is up above. That's the Ibn Ezra. Says the Rashpam, No, Va'yret means God says to Moshe, you know, to recruit you, I had to fly out down here to find you, and meet you. To recruit you, I had to come down from heaven to have this conversation with you. Svorno says similarly, I had to come down here in order to get you the Ramban as well. I left the heaven to appear to you from the fire. I had to come down here. We've shared previously, we always see God when He comes and interacts with humanity. We saw it with the Dor HaFlago. We saw it with Moshe Rabbeinu, what happens with the broken luchos, Meraglin. We use the language in Slichos. What do we say before we invoke the 13 attributes of God? What do we say? Hashem banan. God comes down. Why v'ayered? Rav Schwab is a beautiful image. Because above, in the heavens, God is the expectation of perfection. It's only on earth. We created fallibility and humanity, imperfection. So God has to come to our level to appreciate and understand and be forgiving. It's a lesson in forgiveness. To forgive someone, you have to go to their place. You have to look at things where they are, not where you are. So God sees their suffering, and He comes down to their place. It's amazing, I, I was on a plane yesterday, and when you fly immediately above the clouds, I commented to the person I was flying with, "You know, you still have the benefit of disconnecting from the world when you fly. You're disconnected, you have no idea what's going on down on the ground. And you look down at that pillow of clouds. It could be stormy weather. It could be whatever it is below. But when you're up there, it's just so peaceful. So nice. Looks like cushions of clouds. And you understand, Oh, I got to go down there. I got to land. Reconnect. See what's going on. Check in with the news. Get the emails and texts. It's so peaceful up here. But Vohered, God goes down. But here's the last idea. I thought we were going to do much more. But the last idea I want to leave you with. Who does God save them from? I went down to save them from whom? Mi'ad, Mitzrayim. Writes Rabbi Saloveitchik. Mi'ad, Mitzrayim. There are actually two exoduses. One is from the Eretz Mitzrayim, the land of Mitzrayim. The others from the people of Mitzrayim, from their culture, their ideas, their philosophies, their way of life, their mores. The exodus from Eretz Mitzrayim took place in the 15th night of Nisan was complete. But the exodus from Mitzrayim is a long process. What took place in one night was only the liberation from the land of Egypt. Leaving Egypt, in other words, took the Jews out of Egypt, but taking Egypt out of the Jews is a long road which the Jew has been traveling for 3,500 years without yet arriving at their destination. The Messianic redemption is a continuation of the redemption from Egypt. When Moshe received the assignment to appear before Pharaoh, take the Jews out of Egypt, God says, I've seen your page, I've descended, and I'm coming to take you from where, Mi'ad? Not Mi'ad, Eretz Mitzrayim. What does it say, Mi'ad? My purpose is not just to save them, from the land of Egypt. The final goal, the ultimate end of the Gola, is Mi'ad Mitzrayim, from the whole spiritual complex which is called Egypt, from its philosophy, from its world perspective. God appointed Moshe to be not only the redeemer as far as the exodus from the land, but the redeemer from the second exodus. Moshe had a tough assignment. Assignment Had God given him the task of taking Jews out of the land, he would not have argued at all. He would have accepted the assignment immediately without any discussion. The debate between God and Moshe lasted seven days. And Moshe's reluctance, his protest, was because he knew how hard it would be not to take the Jews out of Egypt. How hard it would be to take Egypt, Egypt out of the Jews. You know, you see, while I was on our plane yesterday, I went to Cuba for the day. I went with a small group of people on a humanitarian trip to Cuba. We bought medicine, supplies. It's For another time, we visited three, there are three shuls, it's about 1, 1,200 Jews. At the height, there were 15,000 Jews in Cuba. It's really a third world, backwards, impoverished, socialist, communist country. What was shocking to me, I leave you with this, the Miad Mitzrayim. Absolutely shocking. Here in South Florida, you interact with Cubans, certainly our Cuban politicians. They depict, they depict Castro and the Cubans as this oppressive regime, the Hitler, to Cuba. You talk to people in Cuba and they have love and loyalty. There's a love-hate relationship with Castro. The socialism and communist ideas are so ingrained. They say, yeah, it's true that, you know, we don't have toilet paper or deodorant. We can't leave and we don't have internet access, but we get to go to college for free and it's made everyone equal. We're all, it's an egalitarian society. You see that when there's a, a in, someone is indoctrinated for long enough It clouds their vision. Kotz ruach and Avodah Kasha, the inability to dream, to see a brighter future, to imagine things being different. It is staggering. It was shocking. Jewish community has pictures in the lobby of the main shul when Castro came for, Fidel came for Hanukkah parties sitting in the pews enjoying. Could you imagine our putting pictures of our worst enemies of when they joined us in in the shul? shocking to see the power of, of not only persecution, but the indoctrination, what it does. More thoughts on this another time. Rabbi Moskowitz continues with his amazing class in Sefer and Have a great week.